1: My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this. My own podcast. I still pinch myself. But thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime.
2: So I'm standing there. There's four people and a dog looking at me because at this stage the fire was just virtually had surrounded us.
1: We recently spoke to David Key where he gave us an incredible insight into his role as one of the rescuers involved in the tragic Sydney to Hobart yacht race of 1998, where six people lost their lives. David was part of a three-man team aboard the Victoria Police Air Wing Rescue Helicopter. And during the subsequent coroner's inquest, it wasn't until David and Daryl, the Airwing pilot, provided scientific evidence of the waves being 100 foot high that's over 30 metres, that the doubters in the courtroom believed it. David and his crew have been involved in hundreds of dangerous rescues, including car accidents, missing persons and people trapped in every situation that you can or can't actually imagine. Uh, David's mental strength is obvious when he talks about his rescues. He's really calm and measured, which is why I believe he was just so good at his job. And he was able to ignore those fears, concerns and, you know, what ifs that he was confronted with. But today we're going to talk about the Black Saturday bushfires, which may trigger and upset some of you because 173 people died. But there are obviously many of you out there carrying grief and trauma from that day. So I want you to consider whether to listen to the next hour or so. But if you thought that David and his air crew's heroics were incredible with the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, well, have a listen to David's role in the Black Saturday bushfires. We really are privileged to have him with us again. So, hi, and thanks for agreeing to return and talk to us, David. Hello,
2: Narelle. Again?
1: (laughs) I believe... (laughs) We're giving you some reprieve uh, from helping Vicky in the kitchen today. Uh, You have a very important job of stirring the pot of what is it? pot jam, yes. (laughs) Reprieve. You have always been good at stirring the pot, David. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's get you out of that kitchen and away from those pots and pans for a while. Uh, So firstly, I'd like to talk to you about your role in the Black Saturday bushfires, but then talk a little uh, about some other rescues that you've done that you recall for all sorts of reasons. So can you give us a bit of background to the Black Saturday bushfires?
2: Okay. Uh, I was rusted on duty on that Saturday and it was about 46 degrees. Uh, Vicky and her mum had gone off to see a play in town while I travelled off to work. And uh, the crew that day was, the pilot was Warwick Young and the winch operator was Brian Norman. And I had the position of uh, rescue crewman for that shift. So we're preparing the helicopter and we could, no, we knew that the bushfires were uh, out and about starting at East Kilmore and spreading across towards Whittlesey. So we were assisting the ground units and we got a call uh, in the air by, from the Channel 9 helicopter. And they were saying they were at Coombs Road in King Lake West and that they could see four people uh, trapped on a property. Could we come and sort of see if we can get them out? So it didn't take us long to fly up there, only a couple of minutes, uh, but it was just the smoke uh, was incredible and just the flames uh, were in the under the smoke and you couldn't really see them until the wind had blow the smoke away and then it was just a mass of flames through that whole area. Uh, that stretched for a couple of kilometres. Channel 9 was hovering near the house. We came in, we did an assessment and what we could see was other houses on Coombs Road. Uh, She lived right at the end and they were just exploding, probably gas bottles and just the heat and the trees were exploding and we thought, oh, this is going to be a bit tricky. But we had discussed it, we were discussing it and we could see that if we just left them there, these people would have perished. Uh, there was no no uh, dramas about that all, at all. Uh, so I was already kitted up uh, to go and do the winch. So we came over the house. We were getting buffeted and the fire front was on three sides of the house. So it burnt up to the front, down one side and across the back and over her driveway. And the fl- the fire was then coming up the gully on the other side, on the fourth side. So I thought, well, we can get as many people out because there was four people there as we can. So I got lowered down and because Channel 9 filmed a whole lot of this, which was incredible, and we were just getting buffeted around just mainly because of the wind. So I landed on the ground on, uh, which I now know is Juliet, her front front lawn, and I called her over and she just had like a – a thousand-yard stare, she was just completely not with it. So I said to her, hi, honey, I'm home. I see you've burnt the toast. Well, she sort of just looked at me and shook her head and that brought her back to – You
1: actually said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Hi, honey, I'm home. You know, you've burnt the toast. So that, it's, you've just got to say things to people and you can see it in their eyes that they're not concentrating and they're they're – wouldn't be lifting to you if you said anything. So I said, "Right, you're here. Put the harness on And She said, oh, I can't leave without my dog, which was down beside our feet. So I grabbed the dog, which was Poncho, and popped him in between us and, of course, pushed him nice and tight and held his paws either side so he wasn't going anywhere. But at, at that time, we were hit with a large gust of wind and embers, and, of course, Juliet's bashing her hair and the dog's sort of panicking, what's happening with mum? So he's jumped off and because I had a full Nomex suit and helmet and gloves so I was pretty protected but I could really feel the the radiant heat and she, I let her go out of the harness and I thought, oh, I can leave her, I'll I'll try someone else. And at that stage I felt the cable go slack um, because normally That can't be good. Ah, correct. Well done. (laughs) Uh,
1: You needed that like a hole in the head.
2: (laughs) What was happening was because the fire was virtually surrounding us, it was sucking all the air out and the helicopter was actually dropping down because it had nothing to keep it up in the air because there was none. So uh, I was given the signal. If they tried to winch me up, it just would have pulled the helicopter out of the sky. So I was given the signal to disconnect. So... There I was watching the winch wire go up to the helicopter and then they just sort of dived and luckily just cleared the trees and got out into some clean air. So I'm standing there. There's four people and a dog looking at me and I went, okay, got a little bit on here. So I used the radio because at this stage the fire was just virtually had surrounded us and, of course, the house would have just gone up This is what I was talking about in my last um, podcast with you. You've got to keep having plan A, B, C, and D. Well, plan A has gone right out the window, so there wasn't much good there. But when I was being winched down, you always look at your surroundings to make you a spatial awareness when you're going into a winch, into an area. I noticed two concrete water tanks. So I said to Juliet, because we had to yell at each other because of the, the noise, And now we could see the flames getting closer. Has she got any axes or sledgehammers? Um, And what I was thinking of, at least we could smash the water tanks, get some blankets, lay under the blankets, and let the water from the water tank go over us as the fire came through because there was nowhere else to hide. It was, you know, bush everywhere. But then I was speaking to the helicopter and they said, if you can get out through the driveway... If you go right and it's down like a fire track, it's in front of the fire, you can't get out any other way. Uh, so it's either stay there and perish or make an attempt to get out. So I put it to the people and when I walked around the other side of the house, here's a horse float with two horses in it and a horse being held by a girl. So I thought well, that adds another little layer of complexity to that to the situation.
1: Can you tell us about the rescue of Juliet? Uh, her friends and that menagerie of animals she had.
2: Uh, Juliet was driving the first car and the horse was being let out the window uh, by the other girl and we then took off the another vehicle behind us and then the horses uh, in the horse float in the four-wheel drive. So we drove down the driveway uh, through the fire and as we got to the edge of her driveway onto Coombs Road, I looked to the left and it was just a just a mass of flames, and, of course, Brian Naylor, the newsreader, lived about 300 metres up the road from Juliet, and he and his wife perished And because 11 people uh, lost their lives on that road that day, which is pretty terrible. Oh. So we turned right and headed off down towards Whittlesea. Uh, I didn't know where I was going. Uh, the helicopter was above us. I could see it and Channel 9, and away we went. I had a uh, bottle of Pepsi that was in the car and the horse's tail and mane was sort of smouldering, so I shook the bottle up and put the horse out and uh, we kept going. But as we were going down the hill, I could sort of see the the smoke and the, the fire was to our right and the helicopter sort of said to us, if you can go a little bit faster, it would be a good idea. So we sort of picked up the pace, moved down the hill uh, the fire then came in behind us because the wind changed at that time, thank heavens, just at the right time. Uh, we made it down to a, a large paddock down the bottom of the hill, got the four-wheel drive filler to smash into it basically to break the padlock, and we moved into the paddock. What I sort of said to them was, you know, stay here. I've got to go um, back to the helicopter because it was landing just across the road. Now, has anyone got any matches? Yes, good. We'll stay here. If the fire comes this way, light the paddock, let it burn, and then drive into where the area is burnt. So at least if the fire comes through, they're, they're sort of semi-safe. If it doesn't come through, change the horses and then head off down the road. So that was all good. But what I did notice was there was a lot of animals in the paddock and birds, mm. kangaroos and deer and all sorts of things. I like, where, where did they all come from? and that'll come out a little bit later, but uh, I sort of went, "All oh, right, okay, well, see you later, and I kept going. So we helped out the fires there for a while. Uh, then we got a, uh, a call to go down to Wilson's Promontory uh, for a fishing boat overturned and a possible ocean rescue. So we had to leave the fires and head off down to Wilson's Promontory. So that was all uh, a very, very big day.
1: Uh, that is an understatement, Dave. That is probably one of the biggest understatements of the year, and I know we're only seven seven or eight days in. But I want to go back a bit. Um, you said <laughs> that uh, Channel 9 filmed the whole thing. Yes. Have you seen that film and yes. how did you feel watching it? Well, it was in-
2: incredible. It's Because you're so concentrating or you are concentrating so much on your task at hand... I didn't really, you know, think about that Channel 9 helicopter because I was concentrating on ours. But then seeing the film, what we'd actually gone into and done uh, was uh, rather phenomenal. Um, And even the fellow from Channel 9, the cameraman that was on the aircraft, uh, we were talking to him back at Essendon uh, a couple of days later and he just said that was, you know, that was incredible. But the thing is, if I hadn't have tried, they would have perished. So, again, just doing my job, or the crew were the whole crew, yeah, because yeah. that's what that's what we we do. And,
1: and that's true. And I yeah, and I understand what you mean that that and that is um, a genuine team effort. Because without you getting uh, winched down, without the your um, team up. In the air, um, directing you.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah. There's no way
1: known you could have done that. So I understand that. Yeah, yeah. But when you watched what happened, did it make you feel a little bit um, sick or a bit uh, like were you a bit overcome or what were the emotions when you watched what you actually did? Uh,
2: No, no, nothing, nothing really. It was just you know, just. I suppose supposed matter not matter as a fact, but that's that's what I was there to do, and I did it. So, and it's not like Juliet and the people there didn't do the right things. They had the pumps going, but the fire was actually sucking the water out. Uh, the pump had shut down; it had had it. Mm-hmm. But the force, you know, the wind and the, and what the, it just was sucking the water out of the sprinklers. Uh, but they weren't working, so that's how much power the, that firestorm had. So she was doing all the right things, um, but it was just the it was a, a firestorm basically. So that's that's the, that's the issue there. But um, I can talk about the animals if you like.
1: Oh, yes, please. <laughs> okay. uh, I do have some questions. Uh, so, oh, okay, questions. um can we just um, park that? As the that's apparently the new saying. Just park that about the animals. I just want to ask you a couple more things about what you <laughs> about what you said. Um, you okay. said you said that Juliet was bashing her hair. I think I know what you mean, but can you explain that a bit more?
2: Uh, she was because she was on fire. <laughs> hmm,
1: that's what I thought you were going to say. Oh, because goodness.
2: of the em- embers that were coming through. Yeah, I was just trying to sort of move away from that a little bit. Um, yeah, because of the embers that were just coming through, uh, was was incredible. Uh, so I was getting hit with the embers, but because I had all, she only had it like a t-shirt and shorts on. So and so did the others. Where I was uh, had full fireproof equipment on, basically, uh, that I could just feel the heat and I felt the know, uh, bits of bark and things like that hitting us. So. Yeah, it was a little bit, uh, bit tense there for a while, and that's getting back to why you have to remain—you have to remain calm, because they're they're all looking at you, you know. And that's what happens in a lot of situations. And same when you were out on the street as a detective, people look at you for either direction, or assistance, or help, or you know, just a shoulder. Uh, it can be all three, or just one. So that's, that's that's the issue. So if you run around like a, like your hands in your ear and going oh Armageddon, um, that doesn't help the situation.
1: No, it certainly doesn't. And um, you talked about. Can you tell us about the harness? Like you're in a harness, and I get that, but you said that. The harness, did you say you put a harness on Juliet and the dog was in between you? Is that right? And what sort of harness is it? How do you get her into a harness?
2: Okay, Uh, what it was is a thing called a rescue strop and it's like a horse collar. So it's attached uh, to the hook with with me because I'm in a full uh, winch harness and you put the collar over their head and then tighten up the chest strap put the person's arms down and they're sort of locked in. So that's what I put her in that and then I got the dog and put the dog between us and then I put my arms around Juliet and squashed her in and then uh, with my – the dog's paws were down through my elbows either side and that's how I was holding them in. But, of course, with the, the brushing and uh, not, not panic but sort of – well, okay, panic, uh, on the poor old Juliet's part. And uh, the, the dog got sort of, you know, what's going on, what's going on. But he was quite happy to sit there, which was good. But uh, it's not, not how it panned out.
1: And you said that you had to leave the harness because the chopper was coming down. Um, yes. Would that have been plan A or B?
2: That, that would have been – that was in the safety briefing that we were conducted when we were flying around. That if anything happens, you get this signal from the the uh, the winch operator, and that means that there's trouble, and you are to disconnect. If it was going to be uh, really quick, they would have just um, cut the cable. But we had luckily we had a little bit of time for me to able to unhook, and the uh, hook went back up to the aircraft, and then that's when they could fly away. But they just couldn't stay in the air, basically.
1: You know, there's, there's so many um, situations that you've just spoken about there where it could have turned, you could have, um, instead of 11, 11 perishing on that uh, road, it could have easily been, what, the four of them and you, uh, easy. Mm.
2: And mm. the machine, if the machine had come out of the sky, you know, the two in the helicopter. So, yeah, so it was... Again, situations that we don't normally find ourselves in, but you have to adjust to it and either keep going or, or, you, or you just give up. And that's sort of not in it, so we don't sort of give up. Um, we just had to keep going. And there was no panic from the crew. It was just, you know, all controlled, and that's what it has to be.
1: Well, when. Uh, you all got in the cars what I don't understand is why weren't the tyres uh, like were the tyres still inflated or were they perished or how did you drive out in that heat
2: uh, because we were driving through it um, the flames, they burnt the paint on the cars because one of the the fellow that was driving one of the cars he he was a little bit miffed that his paint got scorched um, <laughs> And I was just about to say to him, "You reckon you got trouble, sunshine?" <laughs> but I, uh, I didn't, um, because we we actually d- drove through it, and I suppose because the fire had gone through, so it was just everything was burning. So it was still flames that we had to go through, but we went through them sort of quickly. We weren't sort of stuck there, so therefore the fire didn't engulf the cars.
1: Oh gee! A- and you said that Juliet was driving. How yes, how did she manage to drive? I think I would have been an absolute wreck. I don't know how I could have concentrated
2: um well, Juliet knew the road, which helped, so that that was it. but I think she could sense why we were doing it as well and she's an architect, she owns her own architect company, so she's you know I suppose very strong lady to start with, and yeah she didn't dropped the ball at all, a little bit concerned, as you would be. Um, and it was just because we all, we're we all doing something. And I think that's the biggest issue is we all had something to do. Like I was talking to the helicopter and then talking to them and the girl was trying to quieten the horse down as we were being Aww, along yeah. the car. And, yeah. uh, and, of course, Juliet's driving and I'm telling her, you know, left, right, left, right. And... So, again, you work as a team. Worked as a team. It's only when we got down to the clearing that I think it was just a bit of it was a cool, thank heavens for that type of thing. But they were still busy uh, changing the horses over and and things like that. So they they weren't just sitting there contemplating their navel. They were actually all doing something. So that 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 helped as well. But there was a purpose to what we had to do.
1: Yes, and so. If Juliet's driving, where were you and what were you doing? In the back seat. Right. Who was in the front seat? Oh, I just
2: went along for the ride. <laughs> uh, Juliet was driving and the girl was letting the horse out the window. I hope Juliet was in the front seat <laughs> driving.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. So there's not just you and Juliet in the car, it's another woman in the car as well.
2: No, no. Yeah, she's the one leading the horse through the passenger's window on a, on a lead rein.
1: Oh, gee, hard hard to imagine. Um, Now let's get to the animals in the paddock. Tell us about that.
2: Right. Okay. Well, as Juliet also, uh, just jumping ahead a little bit and getting back to this, she also attended the Royal Commission for the fires. She appeared in it to give evidence on the firestorm and uh, things like that. And she actually made a comment. She said, uh, as we were driving down away from the house, it was Dave's Ark. Now, not Noah's Ark, <laughs> Dave's Ark. Now, the reason being is we had all our horses, we had the dog. Oh, the dog was there having just jumping around, being what dogs do. But I didn't actually see it, but there were kangaroos, there were deer, uh, there was evidently wombats, all sorts of animals mm. going down the road with us and beside us.
1: <gasps> right. Now,
2: they're the ones that turned up in the paddock down the bottom of the hill okay that's why I couldn't believe what all these where all these animals came from they'd followed us come with us now whether that's a sixth sense by them going they're going to lead us to safety but horses and deer do not get on but evidently there was a deer running right beside the horse so the horse didn't freak out so that's it's all a bit strange isn't it but um, yeah, uh, yeah just all these animals just there staring at us when we got down to the paddock. They'd obviously all caught up and um, came in through the gate.
1: Like a menagerie. We standing there. Men- well, yeah, a
2: menagerie, yeah. a
1: little menagerie.
2: That's why she, mm. she said it was Dave's Ark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, oh, no, I had all, all my animals with me. And
1: <laughs> I thought the joke was going to be something about Dave's Ark. Sorry, but Dave's No, ARC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we were talking about this the other day, you uh, sent me, oh, my God, it was a letter from Juliet to I think it was the health minister because she didn't know who you were and she wanted to find out who you were. Yes. Can you tell us about that letter and what happened?
2: Well, she, I think it was to the police minister. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Because, Mr yeah, it Cameron, police minister, I think his name Cameron, was. Cameron, that's it. That's it. Yep. And she said, you know, thanks, didn't know who I was but uh, believed it was this person and uh, she'd like to thank us uh, for what we did as the crew. Uh, so we organised it for her to come out. And, of course, she just burst into tears straight off when she met us. Yeah. And, of course, police life were there. Uh, Women's Weekly were there. That's another little story for you. And, of course, you've seen the photo of me leading the dog and talking to her. And she was just a, a, a little bit upset about the whole thing because she'd lost a lot of friends. Yeah. And this was only, like, two weeks after the fire. Yeah. And, but we managed to sort of make a few jokes and laugh and that sort of just breaks people's concentration if they're locked onto something. So um and of course that went into there, but I, I'm very proud of making the Women's Weekly, the article that they did on Juliet and myself, is between El McPherson's Revlon Age Defying Cream and the Rexona Women's deodorant ad. So <laughs> I, you know you've made it <laughs> when you're between the ads. <laughs>
1: Um, I don't know where to go with that. That's very funny. Um, (laughs) It really is a a lovely photo. When you you, um, understand what you had been through and – I hope we'll be able to put that photo up on um, our website or I don't know know how you do it. But the bottom line is it's a beautiful photo and it's um, for the listeners. It's of Dave. There's the chopper in the background. Dave's got Poncho uh, on a, a lead and he's just walking and talking with Juliet. And I just, it's a really, really powerful, it's a lovely photo, but little Poncho, well, Poncho isn't little. Um, what sort of dog is Poncho? Some sort of a... I think it's uh,
2: a, a bitzer. She got him from the um, lost dog's home. So she likes her animals as well. That's what she, I think, um, I think he's mainly Kelpie, just by uh, thinking back on it. Um, but she sort of, she said, "Oh, I can't live without my animals." And I said, "Well, that's fair enough." I said, "That's no problem. So us we'll do the whole." And I think she could sense that I was genuine about like caring for the animals as well as them. Mm.
1: Mm. And
2: it's sort of, it's it's like getting a rapport type of thing going very quickly, um, and keeping everybody on the same wavelength, keeping everybody happy as much as you can. As you know, your mind's going at a thousand miles an hour, but you've got to. You have to do things. You have to have to do things. So, so that was uh, good. But one more thing about Juliet was when I um, was informed that I was going to receive a, a bar to the bravery medal because you can't receive another bravery medal, so you get a bar to it, and you're allowed a couple of guests. Well, I rang Juliet up and said, "Would you like to come to Government House with us as as my guest?" And of oh. course, she said yes. Yes. Yeah. So we went up there and uh, I got the um, bar of my bravery medal and as a crew we got the uh, group citation for bravery again. Uh, so that was all good. But then when we were standing around having our cup of tea and cucumber sandwiches later, <laughs> Linda Dessau came through the crowd and straight up to us because, because um, you know, the other two were in their uniforms. I was in a suit because I'd retired uh, since then uh, and she said to Juliet that she was that pleased to be able to see a person that had been rescued, that people win awards for at the ceremony. She said, I don't see people that have been rescued. And she spoke quite at length to Juliet about it and that, that was incredible. So it was good to see Linda and she was happy um, and uh, the, the old governor. And uh, it was, that was a nice moment as well. So uh,
1: yeah, it, it was and, all good. And you're right, but there's not, I think that says a lot about, and I'm not having a go at the people that win the awards, but the fact that you were the reason why Juliet was there, as in you had asked her to come. And as you say, and as Linda said to her, there's not a lot of um, survivors of these sort of things that, that come because the people that I've rescued don't think about that, but you did. It just shows a lot about your um, compassion, I suppose, and your you know, just your thoughtfulness, you know. And talking about thoughtfulness, something that is in the back of my mind, and I am I hand on my heart. I am not proud to admit this, but I think if that was me, and it never would be, but if it was me um, being winched down, I know what I'd think about the animals, and I know what I'd say to them. Like, like the animals I'm getting you out of here but I think it, it is incredible that you actually thought no you c- you could actually tell and respect the um, love she had for those animals whereas I'd, I don't think I would think like that so I'd, I just that says a lot to me about the type of person you are that you would actually think about the animals I, as I said i I wouldn't um, – I'm not proud of that attitude that I would have, but, yeah, it's, um, it's very nice. That's probably putting it mildly. Uh, anything else about the Black Saturday bushfires that um-
2: – Yeah, well, the other thing that, uh, that happened as a bit of a sidelight to that was Juliet's dad, uh, Derek, actually painted us a very nice watercolour of a uh, sea scene. And uh, it's hanging up proudly on our lounge room wall at the moment. So that was, you know, that's he was that's showing his gratitude. Um, and now Juliet uh, lives in uh, Denmark. You know, we still still keep in contact. So that's, it's a sort of a bit of a bond you get, like the the John Campbell.
1: It would be a lifelong bond. Yes, yeah. I can't get my head around the fact that you don't appear to be psychologically affected by all these dire situations that you're involved in. Um, and I've got to say I thought it was a really interesting explanation that you gave, I think it was last time, about the difference between being winched in and out of a job like you are to that of, say, detectives and the ground crews like me on the ground and we sometimes stand around for hours at a scene waiting for services, you know, like the coroner and the crime scene, all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And you've got time to take that whole scene in and what happened and what if and, you know, when you I don't know, you might be looking, uh, you know, s- sitting with a deceased person and it just make you know, your mind sort of wanders. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought that made a lot of sense. Can you tell us about that where you've – you just – Uh, you're repelled in and you're repelled out. And as you said, off you go to the Wilson's Prom or whatever it was with the boat. So you don't have time, do you, to ponder?
2: No. Well, that's exactly that one. Once we'd completed that, you know, we then assisted and saw some pretty horrible things. Uh, And then we got the call uh, from Search and Rescue uh, off to Wilson's Promontory. So we then had to drop all that um, and now switch our minds over to uh, conducting a a sea rescue uh, and prepare ourselves for that. So we were debriefing for the next job straight away. So you don't have time to sort of sit and dwell on it because I suppose it's because in our world everything's sort of fast-moving. And as you said, we come into a job, whether it be an air ambulance job, finding a deceased that's been missing and things like that, we, we come in, we find, we go. So we haven't got time to sort of, as you said, like dwell on a situation. And as I was once told by a very senior ambulance officer at the air wing, uh, try not to get attached to any of your jobs, because he said that will wreck you. So yes, you can you can do your job you, to your best of your ability. You can feel empathy, but don't get attached to it. He said that that'll just eat at you, and I, I remembered that uh, from what he said. He'd been doing that job for a lot of years. It's not like you're being hard or cold or anything like that. And I suppose that's what has helped me reset my mind after after incidents. Incidents do stick to, stick in your mind, but I try not to make them bad ones. Mm.
1: And see, I don't know how you can do that because. I, hand on my heart, that was my issue. I did get attached and I couldn't, um...
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
1: couldn't help it, like mm. I couldn't stop thinking about, um, you know, all the terrible jobs that I'd been to. You just sound so very sure of yourself, of how you need to manage yourself. Like was that something that you were taught as a kid or was that something you learned?
2: Uh, well, it could, could be a bit of both because, you know, I just came from a normal – I lived in Sydney, normal family. Uh, I joined the Army when I was nineteen after school, and you know I did ten years in the regular army and I was a, a tank troop sergeant on a on a leopard tank so I had fellow, I had uh, twelve you know men to look after you know administration and welfare and all things like that and you 'd go out on exercises and and it 's very sort of i suppose it can be dynamic and it can be slow. So you have to learn to sort of so suppress some of your feelings. Um, so I suppose I'll probably learn it. And then joining the police force again, which is very um, disciplined, I found it very easy to go into that type of thing because both jobs are, are disciplined. I've maintained a circle of friends and you know, military and civilian and police and all the rest of it. And what I found was that you couldn't really talk to too many people. I think I mentioned this last time because they hadn't actually experienced the situation that you'd found yourself in. And plus, I kept busy all the time. You know, we had horses and we had dogs and a yard to look after And because I had my army reserve. So I was sort of had outlets, other outlets as well. And, yeah, I suppose it's a bit of both, um, something I've taught myself or something I've been taught. Um, just to remain stable, if, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. You just touched there on debriefing. So how did you debrief? Like after a day, say like Black Saturday or Sydney to Hobart, we would normally, as a, a ground crew, uh, we would normally, probably unfortunately, um, we'd debrief at a pub um, or we debrief when we were allowed to have a drink at work. That's where we did our debriefing. Um, how did you debrief? Uh,
2: normally in the helicopter on the way back from the job. And it was not debriefing, you know, like, you, know you ask how, how each of us are, you know, just amongst the three of us because that's all there is, uh, but mainly about the job. Did, did we brief enough on... The task on emergencies. Could we have done it better? If we have to do it again, uh, how would we do it? Um, what information needs to be passed on uh, to our hierarchy at the air wing on what could be done better, what what not to do, and what to do? But you just kept on rolling, and then that that'd be it basically, because uh, we you didn't we didn't go out to a pub because we were normally that you know buggered. After a day in the helicopter, you just want to go home and go to sleep.
1: Yeah. And, and also, um, when you do debrief with a whole lot of people, I think you mentioned, um, I can't remember where it was, but you mentioned that often when you're debriefing with a big group of um, cops, that often it would end up with people. Um, uh, bellyaching really, about the politics of the job and who should have done this and who should, didn't and <laughs> and I suppose you never really got involved in that, did you, which is probably a good thing?
2: No, no. I was once when I was doing my um, first phase training when I was at Sunshine Police Station, uh, there was a few pub debriefs And I thought, no, I'm not into this because it would start off okay and then it would end up just being a bellyache session. And I thought, no, that's not going to help anyone, especially in relation to what what we've been through. And it's not healthy. I I, I classified it. I didn't think it was healthy. Um, But um, I have been debriefed by the psych. We we could have them because that was a a thing that – the senior sergeant there was uh, one of his tasks was just to make sure that we, if we needed a psych, we could we could go and get one. And when I was upgraded there as the senior sergeant, the same thing. I would be looking after all the blacks on their different jobs, just to make sure that they were okay. And the one we were debriefed on, uh, we'd hit a power line in the helicopter, and of course had to do a forced landing, and that wasn't much fun. Um, that's, uh, I can sort of you about that. It's another one of our jobs we did. But we were taken up the next day, the three of us, that's the pilot, myself, and the micro-paramedic in another helicopter because we'd wrecked the last one, and we, they flew us towards some power lines. Well, the three of us freaked out. Um, we all just sort of, you know, stop, 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 we can't can't do this. And the senior pilot that was there that was flying said, right, you three, Um, off to the um, police psychologist. And that was good because the AMBOs had their psychologists, uh, which they they have, and their peer support officers, the same as the police department. But the AMBO wanted to come along with us because it was a crew thing. It was the three of us together, and that's what he wanted us, wanted us to stay together. So when we saw the psychologist... Um, we had three different psychologists each, and what feelings I had, which you know, we discussed this later, the three of us, were completely different from what the pilot had. The Ambo and myself had much the same feelings because the pilot was in command of the whole situation where we were sort of the passengers. So we had different feelings. But she explained to us that's quite normal for a um, first responder that has gone through a dire situation. That the feelings, you know, of, of you know guilt or you know why why was it me type of thing, and uh, it was um, normal after a major traumatic incident. That was normal. So, which I think put me instead. They, they were my feelings, and she said, "Oh, they're quite normal." Okay, because. I was fixing our letterbox at, at work when we got the job, air ambulance job, um, and I left it I hadn't finished putting the nails into it. As we were sort of coming down out of the, out of the sky, that's all I could think about was I haven't finished the letterbox. <laughs> not, a, not about Vicky, not about anything else. I haven't finished the letterbox. And, <laughs> and she said, no, that's normal because it's the last thing that's sort of in your mind Your subconscious thinks about that. Um, So I think that's what helped me in the the Sydney to Hobart and the fires. I knew what to expect and that's why Daryl and I from the Sydney to Hobart, uh, the pilot, we spoke a lot because his feelings were different to mine because he was in control and we were the passengers because he was responsible. Well, after we hit the, just off on the sideline, after we hit the power line, we came back by car and got to the air wing. Vicky was there and the pilot rushed up to Vicky, hugged her and said, oh, I nearly killed your husband. Now, he had a different feeling what I had. I said, nah, now I can fix finish the letterbox. So, you know, it's it's just different feelings for different people on on that. So that's the only real official debrief I've had. And I felt that I could, you know, handle the other ones myself, which hopefully I did.
1: Just going back, so that debrief you had, that was from uh, the power lines, not from Black Saturday, yeah, is that Yeah, power right? lines. Yeah, that was yeah.
2: in 1990. See, that was ages ago. So,
1: Oh, and you learned a lot from that, from the power lines uh, incident. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I get it. Um There's a couple of – yeah, there's so many questions. (laughs) I don't know where to go. Um, But I just want to go back. So the psychological help, um, I suppose it was a bit like me. Were you – I never wanted to admit that I didn't cope very well with a certain situation or that it it really affected me, and it was up to me to go to the psych or to seek help. They – They came to us in a a strange sort of way back in the, what was it, in the 90s, 90s, I suppose, and 2000s, where what would happen is they'd send you an email to say, we understand you've been involved in an incident, a serious incident. Mm -hmm. If you feel like ringing this number, please do. But you never would because... That was an admission number one to yourself that you weren't coping, and number two you didn't want anyone to find out because you would feel a bit um oh i suppose ashamed that you weren't coping D- did you feel like that like did you feel you really probably should have had psych help but you couldn't for all oh, i don't know any sort of reasons is is that how you felt no no not, um, no i i didn't
2: really because And the others didn't either uh, from both crews. I suppose because we didn't sort of dwell on it that much either. Once we'd had our debrief, that was it right out onto the next job. So it was all pretty dynamic in that sense. And so I knew a bloke that worked at the search and rescue that I used to work with many years ago, and he's done some pretty terrible jobs down there. And, you know, because we used to fly search and rescue around with us on a lot of jobs, you know, you just chat in the helicopter as you do. And he was saying, you know, we got onto this thing about the the bushfires, as a matter of fact. And he went up to Marysville, like myself, the next few days after the fires went through there. And he just said, yeah, he's just done this job, go on to the next one, go on to the next one. See, I don't know his personal situation whether he did go, but that's that's the way I sort of was thinking uh, on my situation. So again, it's different mindsets for different people.
1: Mm. Yeah, I understand. And so, can we go back to? Can you tell us about that power lines incident? <laughs> what happened there?
2: Right. Um, I was working the air ambulance helicopter. And we got a job to a girl that had fallen out of a tree at a a place called Yellingboe out uh, the back of Mount Dandenong. And she'd broken her legs because of the distance to get her back into a Melbourne hospital. That's why the helicopter's used. So we flew up there. It was midday, a very warm day in February. And what the first thing you do is when you've got a landing area sorted out or the ambulance of crew have sorted a, a landing spot out, you always do a check, mainly for power lines, uh, for, you know, trees, wind, uh, and no obstacles on your, your route in and a route out. So all this is done um, every time. Uh, and there was a large lake right beside where they were and the sun was shining off the lake. Um, uh, we couldn't see – we spotted one set of power lines – and we all identified that, but as we swung around uh, to have another check before we landed, um, and probably because of the reflection and the wire was actually dull, um, and we couldn't see any poles because that's what you look for, are the poles, power poles. Yeah. yeah, Uh Next second, bang, and we look up and there's a power line under the rotors um, hitting the top of the um, cockpit. And we were basically stuck on this power line, pushing tension on it. And the pilots, again, we didn't say a word. It was just calm. Yeah. And you go into your emergency mode, basically. And I had certain tasks to do. If we were going to have a a crash landing or a a forced landing, I had certain tasks. And all we called, Park it quickly. Uh, (laughs) You've got to park the helicopter quickly. Uh, So what was happening was the actual um, cable or the power line was hitting the um, rotors and then slapping back down onto the uh, Perspex cover over our heads and bouncing backwards and forwards. Well, Because we'd put tension on it because we were moving forward, we were actually twisting ourselves around the power line which means we would have then turned upside down and just gone straight into the dam. Um, but at the, as we're sort of getting to that point of the pilot couldn't control it anymore, I was about ready to blow the doors off and uh, do what I had to do, uh, assisting the pilot, and the power line snapped. Thank heavens for that, but it took off the top of the tail right? not the tail rotor, but the tail, and a brand-new HF tenor, antenna that they'd put on it. And that's what the engineers were really miffed about, that we'd wrecked their antenna. <laughs> and, you know, typical coppers.
1: Yeah, you're right.
2: And so what happened was we were able to – pilot was able to pick the machine up, an yeah, outstanding pilot, this fella. Uh, and as we picked it up and ready to sort of then take it across land because bits of the blades were getting – um, smashed off at the same time and there was a power light in front of us again so we said oh, not again uh, but we just luckily climbed over it, spun it round, hit the ground and we all just got out of that helicopter and just ran because we didn't know what was going to happen and the, uh, the pilot he sort of was just standing there he cleared a three strand barbed wire fence and he was a big boy so that's how, how, much, how much he wanted to get away from it. And his name was Trevor Wilson, and he's now the chief pilot up at um, the helicopters up in Queensland uh, at the, in Brisbane. So he's a, he was a terrific bloke. And that's all he kept saying. He was sorry, 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 sorry. Well, it wasn't his fault. It was all our, not our fault, but all of us missed that, that power line. And, of course, when the, the chief pilot came out, who was an old Vietnam fellow, and he said, oh, I'll have a look at the helicopter. He said, I've been shot down. I was shot down three times in Vietnam, so I should be able to, to sort this one out. Um, and they managed to fly it back, and it was yeah, quite a bit of damage. And we managed to get to the girl with the broken legs and, and patch her up. And that's why the next day they took us up and flew us straight towards some power lines, and that's when we all – all freaked out.
1: So, what happens when David Key freaks out?
2: I just went, ah, "Don't like this." Yeah, no, not 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 freak out, but we all uh, we didn't all all carry on, but we just all were very. You could they could sense we were all very apprehensive. Is probably the yeah, word
1: anxious, sort of
2: anxious. Yep, that's it. Because you know we've the day before we'd survived hitting a power line, and here you are, you buggers are flying us towards power lines again.
1: In hindsight, do you think that that was a good idea to put you back in that um, in that situation?
2: I think it was um, just to just to see. Well, that's the last thing you need is a crew that's going to go out flying and they see a power line and go, oh, you know, this this is this can't do this. Um, so yeah, I, at the time, it wasn't much fun. <laughs> But I could see what the chief pilot was trying to do is just to make sure that we're all okay and we weren't uh, at that stage. But once we went and saw the site, um, they they sort of put it in a, a logical sequence and why you're thinking, why you are, and that was it. That was good. You know, she gave me a list of uh, things you're going to feel this, 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 and this, and about week two you're going to feel that. Sure enough, we did. So you've just got to put it all in perspective basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um- a nagging question: um, What was the woman doing in a tree that she fell out of? How? What was the? What's the go there?
2: She was at a youth camp. It's a, like a scout type thing, but it was a, a um, it was a church um, scout camp or you know, church camp for kids, yep. and she was just wanted to climb up the tree, and she did very well. Right, until she fell out.
1: Yes, that, that's not doing very well in my book. But, no. You know, anyway. No, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah,
2: and of course she fell out and broke both her legs. So the, mm. Not many ambulances out that neck of the woods, so the first one that turned up only had one ambo officer. Right. And all he could do was a stabiliser until he, um, we could arrive and, with a micro-paramedic. H-
1: has there ever been a rescue where it's been too dangerous? that you've decided, no, we can't do this?
2: Um, dangerous, yes, for a number of reasons. Um, I think I mentioned like the last one before, but it was the people that we are rescuing, they were the ones in, the danger, in danger. And I've done one that was basically a cliff rescue. But the trouble is we would have had to get too close to the cliff. And there's an issue with falling rocks and trees and things being dislodged. They could either a fall onto the helicopter blades or fall onto the helicopter, or the rocks falling onto the people. So that was too dangerous for us, and too dangerous for them. Like there's both sides of it, and uh, and of course there's also the chance of a blade strike against the cliff because we had to come in so close. They were people that had gone walking on some rocks, and the the tide came in and they were trapped. Um, so and it was uh, too rough for a boat. Uh, police boat to get into them, so that's why we were called, and unfortunately it was just um, too much for us as well. So they had to send the SES down uh, down the cliff and uh, pluck them out uh, from there. But uh, they, they sort of just got them before the, you know, the, the tide came right in, so they were a little lucky. And even down at uh, the night rescue uh, that we were conducting um, into some trees. We were, we were sort of down right on top of the trees uh, on on the top of the canopy, and because of the wind shear coming off some uh, some hills and the cliffs, uh, uh, there wasn't much error not much room for error on our part. so we had to uh, abort that one and again, pilot sort of he sort of said, "Oh maybe." We'll have a look at it, but when we got down low, I said, "No, that's it. Abort. It's just too too dangerous for us all." And again, knocking tree branches down and and all that on top of the people that are on the ground. So you got to you have to think of them as well. What more injuries could you do to them? Um, and they were okay. There was a person with a a broken leg, so search and rescue were, um, had to walk in. and They spent the night with them and and then walk them out on a stretcher the next day. So that's, you know, this happens all the time. So it's just one of one of those things.
1: What about the car stuck in the mud that you were telling me about?
2: Oh, sorry, the boat, the, oh. the tinny.
1: Oh, tinny, right, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that one?
2: Yeah, so uh, what it was, it was uh, off um, French Island in Western Port Bay and what quite happens, quite often happens, people go out fishing and the tide goes out and they get stuck on the mud flats. So luckily for mobile phones these days, they ring up and say, oh, help, uh, can you come and get us? And so we said, no problem. You couldn't get a boat to them because if you hopped out of the boat onto the mud, well, that's it. You just sink straight away because um, it's very, you know, mangrovey and mucky out there. So we I've done quite a few rescues in Western Port Bay and it um, haven't been a problem. But this one, the way the tinny was sitting on the mudflats and it was just the two people in it, and, yes, the pilot said, we can do it, we've got the fuel, we haven't got the problems with wind or power lines or anything like that. So on the safety side of it, that's his job as well. Yes, it was okay from the pilots and the aircraft perspective. The crewman was quite happy to go down, the rescue crewman, to go down and winch the people up because we discussed it all and, again, looked at the situation as we flew overhead. But then I just had this little niggle that we can winch him down, but the downwash from the helicopter would probably flip the tinny over um, and it would be upside down on the mud. Because when we came over and did a couple of just checks to make sure we hadn't enough power and you could see the tinny moving as we were flying towards it, and if we went right overhead, uh, it could have flipped it, and especially if you take – one person out of it, well, there's, there's not much weight. And if you flipped over, well, you've got to think of the ramifications of what you're trying to achieve. So, again, this is all just keep playing A, B, C and D over again. Um, right, that's not going to work. What about this? What about that? Well, we can't put our crewman in the mud and let him walk to them because he couldn't. Uh, the next thing was talking to the water police. Tide comes in in three hours. Right. Wait for that. So they stayed there until the tide came in, boat floated, and they then went in and got them. So you just have to recheck and recheck and recheck everything. So that was me that decided not to do that one as the winch operator, and there was no qualms, even though the other two wanted to do it. it's what we did. That was it, you know, our self-checking technique.
1: Yep. So w- what you're saying in a situation like that is that, there might be two out of three that say, yep, we're doing it, but you only need one to say no and there's no questions. We're not doing it. Is that
2: Yep, that's it. Is that right? Yep, and there is a reason mm. why that person has said no, and, of course, you, you say that reason, they okay, go, yep, cool, no problems. You know, it's not a bargey thing, oh, well, I can do it, we can do this, we can do that. Uh, no, it's uh, obviously because we do it that often and do it in training as well, We make scenarios up that are impossible just to see if the people will think about it and hopefully do the right thing. So uh, it's just one of those things. And, of course, when we used to come back after a a job, a winch job, a rescue job, we'd have to fill out a form and and the biggest thing is what worked well, what didn't work well, and improvements and things like that. And so that was my job was to go through those and then to bring in either further training or try for extra equipment. Like we've got, just before I um, retired from there, um, it was called, it was like a baby basket. Now, remember the floods up in Queensland? Um, well about 10 years ago or whatever it was, when they did a lot of rescues off rooftops of houses at, um, in that valley, well, one of them was a baby and they had no equipment for the baby. They had to hold it. So what we looked into is it's called a baby basket. So you go down, it's like a big shopping trolley with a zipper roof on it. So you can put the, put the baby in it or, as I said, you can now put cats and dogs in it and be able to bring them back to the helicopter. So, you know, it's it's improvement all the time. If someone says no, even if if that was a yes, say for our one on the on the boat on the mudflats, we still write in there Our yes, it worked well, no dramas, however, these are the issues you have to think about and that would come up in training all the time. And so everybody's getting little extra snippets of information, not just me but other people from other rescues and you go, oh, cripes here, didn't think of that. But it's different at the time doing a job than sitting back and reflecting on it.
1: I suppose we you know, Vicky might need some help in the kitchen with um, stirring the apricots, so I'd better not keep you too long. I don't want to get you in trouble with Vicky. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Oh, but oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, just a couple more questions. Yeah, uh, yeah. A question out of left field. Has there ever been a rescue where you've thought it's really stumped you and you've thought, how the hell are we going to do that? Uh, no,
2: not, not really. It's either we do it or we don't or we have a go at it and if we can't do it, well, that's it. It was never let's find the hardest thing we can do and try and work out how we can do it. It was more a case of let's just take all this in That's why we have briefings all the time. And as you know, you get given a job, you get to the job and it's completely different to what you've been told. But at least you would have had some sort of plan in the mill of what you're going to do when you get there. But when you get there, you go, ah, jing's any cricket. (laughs) It's completely different. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Oh, I know what you mean. Uh, So
2: you sit there and you, you go, ah. But you think on your feet, don't you? You think... You did. The, you do the same thing. Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, but you probably don't think. You probably don't know that you've done it.
1: Yeah, but I, I don't have an issue of if I'm going to get, um, uh, you know, wrapped around some power lines. <laughs> or...
2: <laughs> oh, okay. You've got me on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. One to me. Hey, um, is there ever been a rescue which has uh, tugged a little at your heartstrings, other than the ones you've mentioned? Um, I suppose the.
2: The ones that really tug at my heartstrings is when it can be a rescue or it was a search or a, a car accident is you're doing your best to try and save someone. Mm. But if you can't, it's the seeing and the hearing of their friends or family when they get told that that patient or that person has died. And you know what people's reactions are like yeah. in a lot of those situations. And again, that's where I couldn't let myself get personally attached. Well, we couldn't really because we weren't – that wasn't our job. Say so the ground crew. It was a car accident um, and there's people there that know the person in the car and we can't save them and they're told – it's normally someone from the van type of thing that tells them, well, we pack our equipment up and we're gone. So you've left them with all the mess. Does that make any sense?
1: Oh yeah it does. Sometimes I wish I would have had a chopper there that I could have got away from all that. <laughs> you're right. It yeah. that is just um there's <laughs> yeah, it's hard to describe.
2: Yeah, that's it. That that sort of it tugs at your heartstrings and but you can't let it well that's what I looked at it. You can't let it get to you, and that's what the old fella said, uh Ambo. Don't get attached. Try not to get you of course you get attached. <laughs> You know, you've been trying for an hour and a half to, to save this person uh, in the car accident and you, you think, oh, beauty, we got them, and they die. So it's, it's pretty pretty terrible. But, yeah, yeah, that's, I suppose, those sort of things because that's all, what you did was major incidents, major car accidents, um, you know, with serious injuries and deceased people. And, of course, our world was sort of fast-paced, Right, bang, right, next, right. We're off to the next accident and things like that. So you prepare for that, um, and then you know, and then and then you're off to go and look for a, a missing dementia patient um, down at Brighton. It's your next job, but you, you then focus on that. So it's 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 quickly unlike yourself, where you were probably tied up for hours, and then you had days and weeks and months of um, sort of li- reliving that whole thing. Yeah, you know, if you were know. the informant on a on a task or whatever it was, and then preparing people for court, uh, you know, you, you, you're back into that situation again.
1: Yeah. Geez, you had it easy. Seriously. <laughs> 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 hey, listen, can we can we finish off with uh, just telling the listeners? You told me a lovely story about a um, a little girl oh, having yeah. to calm her down. Can <laughs> we finish off on that?
2: Can oh you- yeah. It's- with all the bad jobs, there's a lot of good jobs as well, and there's been quite a few of them, but this one was very memorable to me. Uh, We've been to a car accident, and unfortunately, the mother and father had passed away, and the small child had broken legs. She was probably two, two and a half, three years old, so we got her out of the car, put her into the ambulance helicopter, and I was in the back um, with the microparamedic paramedic because of the injury she had, she needed, she needed assistance, and of course she was scared, she was distressed because you got the all the lights, the helicopter and, you know, all this sort of thing. And the paramedic said to me, oh, can you sing Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star to her? And I'm going, what? And of course the, the poor little kid's got a grip on my, my fingers and it causes the noise, and so I'm going... Yeah. Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star, <laughs> at my best singing voice, <laughs> but it distracted her. You know what I mean? It, it would be it,
1: very distracting, you sing. Oh, yes, trust me, it and, was. Yeah,
2: yeah. Or maybe <laughs> maybe it was the drugs, but I'm not quite sure, but she settled down she, quite now because, you know, she's dragged out of a car and she's thrown onto a stretcher and there's all these oh. people around her. Yeah. Uh, she was terrified, you know, bawling mm-hmm. her eyes out and then mm-hmm. – Kicking and flailing around, so it was yeah. just sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. So away I went in my best rendition, and it, <laughs> it, it, it worked, and it was quite good. So, uh, and that, as the abo said, uh, don't give up your day job.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna second that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that suggestion. <laughs> Dave, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I yeah words can't describe uh how i feel about what you've done just and just your whole attitude those um but it, yeah it's um yeah it almost leaves me lost for words which doesn't happen very often
2: but uh, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard that <laughs>
1: Uh, but, uh, but thank you so much for everything you've done, uh, for all those rescues uh, that you've done, and all the rescues that have been successful and unsuccessful. You've uh, obviously you tried and you did your best. And gee, anyway, uh, I'm rambling. I'll let you That's go. That's all
2: right. That's but, all right. But as, as a little side note for that one, I'm still we're still very good friends with the paramedic that I was because you used to work with a paramedic a fair bit of the time, all the same ones. And so there's, the, there's still that friendship outside the job um, that you, you carry on for years because you've got this, I suppose, connection. Uh, and the same with, the, you know, the Campbell family from the Sydney to Hobart, uh, Juliet, and even, you know, Daryl the pilot, we, we still keep in contact really, really well um, because we've all got something similar uh, from different sides of the house, I suppose. But uh, yeah, very good.
1: Now, don't you start getting attached, David, because <laughs> you know that can lead to trouble. All right, yeah. lovely to talk to you. Uh, good luck with your apricots, and uh, love to Victor. Oh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> no drama. <laughs> thanks very much,
1: Narelle. All right, thanks, David. Okay, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye. narelle here again thanks for listening and i hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together but to make sure you never miss an episode of narelle fraser interviews hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too and again thanks for joining us We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.